0: And not just online. So I want to start with a little question. You don't have to answer this out loud. Please don't. What is your besetting sin? And don't, if you're watching online, don't type it in the chat box either. What's your besetting sin? See, this was a question that four pastors discussed one night sitting around a fire while away for a Little weekend retreat. What is your besetting sin? After some silence, one pastor chimed in and spoke up and said, All right, I guess I'll go first. My besetting sin is gambling. Every once in a while, I slip away from the office and I head down to Atlantic City to gamble. After such candor, the second pastor volunteered. He said, well, my besetting sin is drunkenness. I keep a bottle of whiskey in the basement, and when I get really frustrated with my elders, I go down there and I drink too much. The third pastor then chimed in and said, my besetting sin is anger. I have a punching bag in my garage. When I get mad at someone from the congregation, I go home and I hit the punching bag and I picture their face. The fourth pastor, silent, everybody turns at him, and they say, well, what's your besetting sin? It's your turn. He finally fessed up, and he said, well, guys, my besetting sin is gossip, and I cannot wait to get home. <laughs> See, we all have these besetting sins. We all have those deeply rooted sins that rear their ugly heads over and over and over again. We all wrestle with those particular sins that that seem to cling to us, those temptations and those traps that trip us up so often. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You could be a Christian for 50 years and still be struggling and having the same lapses of faith that you had 50 years ago. And these sins could be anything. It, it, they could, it could be an, an out-of-bounds craving uh, f- for food and, and eating too much of it when you get hungry. It could be an inappropriate desire for sex when you're feeling uh, lonely or neglected. It, it could be an addiction to shopping. It could be an addiction to drugs or alcohol. It, it could be your tendency to manipulate others to get what you want or your ability to spin the narratives of your life in such a way so that everything looks good for you. Or it could be your custom of holding grudges and fueling the fires of old hatreds. Or it could be falling back on the same old tactics of lying and deception that you relied upon in the early years of your faith journey. See, what we'll see today is that our good old friend Abraham finds himself again in a tough spot. But instead of turning to God for wisdom, he, he turns to his own fleshly wisdom. And the best guidance that he's able to get from his own wisdom, the best guidance his own wisdom could produce, happens to be the very same misdirected tactic that Abraham used 25 years earlier in Genesis 12 when he first started following God. See, Genesis 20 is where we're going to look today. And in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham is going to prove to us that we never outgrow our need to walk by faith. We never outgrow our need to walk by faith. We never outgrow our need to listen to God's voice. We never outgrow our need to trust God. In His guidance, We never outgrow our need to believe that, that, G- that he really does protect us, that he really does provide for us. We never outgrow our need to depend on Jesus to do his work in us and through us. We never outgrow our need to walk by faith. So Genesis chapter 20, starting in verse 1, says this. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. So, uh, up to this point, Abraham has been living in Hebron for quite some years. Hebron was only about uh, 20 miles or so from uh, Sodom and the other uh, Dead Sea cities. And and after everything happens with Sodom and Gomorrah, like we saw last week, Abraham decides to pull up stakes in, in Hebron and find somewhere else. And if you remember. Just before Sodom fell, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that, that God told Abraham that at a specified time, within a year, he was going to have that, that promised son. The first time God makes um, that promise and puts a time frame on it. So Abraham, after everything happens with Sodom and Gomorrah, he ventures about 60 miles south. Uh, to go to the Negev, that's the desert land in the southern part of Canaan. And after grazing there for a short while, he then decides to bring his family, his clan, about 30 miles northwest to visit a city of Gerar. The city of Gerar was not far from the Mediterranean coast. So when they go to Gerar, something quite familiar happens. Verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, "'She is my sister.'" And Abimelech, king of Geror, sent and took Sarah. Does this sound familiar? It should. This is the same thing that happened 25 years earlier, 25 years earlier. If you remember, God reveals himself to 75-year-old Abraham, tells him to to follow him. He invites Abraham to follow him. He promised uh, Abram that that he'd be the father of a new nation. So so Abram uh, believes him. He takes his family. He takes whatever he has. He he has his little clan. He, He leaves and he goes to follow God. He settles in Canaan, then when he's in Canaan, it's not long that he's in Canaan before he comes face-to-face with a famine. The famine scares him, so he devises a plan to escape to Egypt, uh, hoping that he'll get some food and everything uh, by the Nile River, where it's more plentiful. But because he was worried that he was going to be killed when he went to Egypt over his wife's good looks, his plan involved lying to Pharaoh by telling him that Sarai, his wife, was his wife sister. So here we are 25 years later and Abraham is resorting to the same old sin he relied on when he was Abram. He arrives in Gerar he mentions that Sarah is his sister and so Abimelech has her taken into his harem. Abraham has already forgotten his need to walk by faith. Verse 3 says but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. So God suddenly intervenes. He he made, remember, he made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. And God's not about to let some pagan king or some unfaithful patriarch spoil that plan. So God reveals himself to, to the king in a dream. He reports that Sarah is, in fact, married. And he warns Abimelech that his relationship... With Sarah means the death penalty. Look at the next two verses. It says, now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So Abimelech is responding to God and pointing out that he was simply acting on the information that he got from Sarah and Abraham. Between the fact that they both lie to him and between the reality that the king actually hadn't slept with Sarah, Abimelech now has has a clear conscience and he has clean hands before God. Verse 6, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So, so God responds to Abimelech here by drawing attention to his, his uh, omnipotence and to his omniscience. Right? He knew all along the perf- with perfect knowledge exactly what was going on in the king's heart in this matter. He knew. And he reveals that it was actually his perfect power that kept Abimelech from even being getting close to Sarah. And then God gives him this path toward restoration. Verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So how ironic it is that, that the one who created The problem for the king is the one who must intercede on behalf of the king's life. See, God tells Abimelech that Abraham, the prophet, will pray on his behalf. And this is the first time, by the way, we see the word prophet used in the Bible up to this point. It's reminding us that here that Abraham's sinful practice, as stupid and sinful as it was, it could not change, it could not alter his God-given position. His practice could not change his position. Now, it's not a stretch, though, to wonder what Abimelech's thinking as God is is telling him that Abraham's a prophet. He's probably thinking, wait, this is your prophet? A liar and a troublemaker is what he is. So what does he do with these marching orders from God? Verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Abimelech hardly slept the rest of the night. He was shaken up by the whole ordeal. So he he gets up, he gathers uh, the men of his house, he tells them everything, and now they're all afraid too. So the king's not about to go against God and disobey him, but he is going to have some words for Abraham. So he summons Abraham, verses 9 and 10. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? So the king is frustrated. He's ticked. He wants answers. He demands an answer. And now Abraham gives him one. Verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. So Abraham failed to walk by faith in this entire situation and now we know why. Fear. He was afraid. He feared the people. He feared for his own life. Ironically enough, the reason he feared the people was because he assumed that they didn't fear God. But as it turned out, these pagans demonstrated a greater fear or reverence of God than the patriarch himself did. Abraham even tries to justify his actions. Look at the next two verses. He says, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come say of me he is my brother see abraham's hoping that the king here is going to follow his reasoning as to why he said the things he said and did the things he did calling sarah his sister according to abraham it's 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 more of a half truth it's not really a whole lie because sarah is in fact his half sister And remember, it was neither uncommon nor forbidden to marry a half-sibling during this time. This is about 4,000 years ago, early on in human civilization. There's still about another 400 years left after this until Moses condemns and forbids this practice. And the other thing is, I mentioned this when we were going through this passage in Genesis 12, but it is also very likely that the gene pool was more pure in those ancient days. So you didn't have the the accumulation of the genetic deficiencies that we see so often today. But the point here, though, is that Abraham's half-truth, that he masqueraded as a whole truth, ended up being nothing more than a complete untruth. He even admits that this practice of calling Sarah uh, his sister started when God first called him, and it continued to be his default response every time they went to a new place where he felt threatened. Abraham forgot his need to walk by faith. Now let's pause here for a moment from the narrative and ask ourselves, what are we to make? of all this. How do we make sense of this? How is it that Abraham, the man that the New Testament holds up as, as this ideal man of faith, this mighty man of faith, how is he, how is it that he can be called uh, faithful yet act so foolishly time and time again? His, His life has been a journey of spiritual ups and downs. We've seen the best of Abraham. We've watched him display humility and incredible courage. We've seen him demonstrate unwavering trust in God over and over and over again. But we've also seen the worst of Abraham. We've seen the worst of him. He's lied repeatedly to save his own skin. He's put his family in danger time and again, and he even went along with this polygamous plan to produce a son with another woman. Now that he's older and more mature... We don't think we'd see him messing up and falling into the same traps of his past, but he does. Now, I don't know about you, but this is all way too familiar for me. Abraham's story isn't given to us to make us feel better about our sins and, and lapses, though. See, his story is given to us to instruct us, to teach us that we never outgrow our need to walk by faith. If that was true for Abraham, it's certainly true of us. Followers of Jesus are called to walk by faith, never by sight. In fact, Abraham's life provides for us at least two sobering truths that we need to be reminded of when it comes to living a life of faith. So here's the first one. Be mindful of of how suddenly fear will try to rattle your faith. Be mindful of how suddenly fear will try to rattle your faith. See, in Abraham's case, we saw, we saw that he feared for his life. He feared the people of Gerar, assuming the worst about them. He feared that they'd take Sarah away from him. He feared that God's promise of a son would never come to fulfillment. Abraham allowed all of these fears to, to rattle his faith, which then led him to another moment of failure. Similarly, when we give permission in our lives, in our hearts, for fear to occupy the place of faith, we end up on the doorstep doorstep of our old besetting sins. So think about what it is that you fear. What are those things that you fear? Those anxieties and worries that rattle you deep to your core. Think about those things. Because they're telling you something. They're trying to reveal something to you. See, first, what you fear is, Reveals what you value the most. What you fear reveals what you value the most. Identifying what you fear will show you exactly what it is that you value. So maybe you have a fear of loss. It could be a fear of of losing a spouse, losing someone close to you. It could be a fear of a financial loss or even the fear of, of losing control. Or maybe you have a fear of failure, never wanting to take a step forward, worrying that you'll fail yourself or that you'll, you'll fail and disappoint those around you. Or maybe you have a, a fear of rejection, never wanting to get close to someone because you fear that that person's not going to love you or accept you when they find out who you really are. Maybe your fear of rejection looks like people-pleasing, trying to say yes to everyone so that they'll accept you, so that they'll love you. So that they'll think well of you. Or maybe you just fear the unknown, afraid of what the future holds, or afraid of stepping out of your comfort zone into something unknown. Whatever it is that you fear serves as an indicator of what you value most. So if you fear losing your job or losing your money, for example, it shows that that you likely value wealth or, or financial security or stability. If you fear disagreeing with someone or saying no to another person, it shows that you value that person's approval and acceptance. What we fear always reveals the things that we value the most. So once we can identify those deepest values inside that we allow fear to poison, then we can come to an awareness of the areas that we're not trusting God with. See, because not only does what you fear reveal what you value the most, your response to fear... Reveals who you trust the most. Your response to fear reveals who you trust the most. See, when Abraham approached Gerar, he was afraid. He was afraid he'd be killed. His fear of being killed then showed what he valued. What did he value? He valued his life. So did he end up trusting God with his life in this moment? Or did he trust himself to save his own skin? He trusted in himself. See, for every difficult decision we make, for every scary situation we find ourselves in, we have the choice to walk in fear and trust in self or to walk by faith and trust in God. So be mindful of how suddenly fear tries to rattle your faith. Those moments when you're getting rattled, repeat the refrain of the psalmist who sang in Psalm 56.3, when I am afraid, I trust in you. When I am afraid, I trust in you. When I am afraid, I trust in you. You can trust God in the face of your greatest fears knowing that you never, ever face your fears alone. God is faithful. He's with you in every single circumstance and his spirit lives within every single one of his children. That means that there is no fear too great for God to safely walk you through. When you are afraid, trust in him. Amen? Stories told of a child who had to walk home by himself each evening past a spark, uh, past a, a dark, uh, spooky house, scary little house. So some adults stepped up and tried to give him courage. One handed him a good luck charm to ward off the ghosts. Another had a streetlight put up on the corner. And still another said earnestly, It's sinful to be afraid. Trust God and be brave. But he offered nothing, nothing else, no other help. Then someone said with compassion, I know what it is to be afraid. I will hold your hand and I will walk past that house with you. See, he did nothing to remove the fear except to lift it from the child's shoulders and to place it on his own. So when fears try to suddenly assault your faith, trust in the one who places all of your worries, all of your anxieties, all of your fears on his shoulders. Don't allow your fear to trip you up and to bring out the worst in you. Give it to God. Trust in him. Let him lead you through the dark and difficult valley. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. So here's the second sobering reminder from Abraham's life. First, be mindful of how suddenly fear will try to rattle your faith. And here's the second. Be mindful of how surprisingly family will reflect your faith. Be mindful of how surprisingly your family will reflect your faith. See, one of the saddest things that we see from Abraham's life is how his besetting sin lived on in his family even after he was long dead. I want you to listen as I read some of Genesis chapter 26. We're not going that far in the story, so I wanted to bring that in. And this takes place, uh, Genesis chapter 26, takes place when Abraham's son, Isaac, um, was born. And this is is dozens of years later. He could be anywhere between 40 and 80. Um, But listen to how familiar some of this sounds. Genesis chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac, Abraham's soon-to-be-born son, Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And by the way, Abimelech isn't a formal name. It's like a title, like Pharaoh, uh, king, president. So Abimelech, uh, king of the Philistines. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then can you say, she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Like father, like son. It really is so sad when our sins are duplicated in our own families. Not only is it sad, but it catches so many parents unexpectedly. Many don't even realize just how vital it is, not only to encourage and support your children's love for Jesus, but to actually model it for them. That's the key part. Modeling that lifestyle of love and devotion. Yes, we do reproduce children who look like us physically, but make no mistake that the real reproduction is a spiritual one. It comes from living out our lives in front of children who are watching us and who are going to imitate us in the most dramatic ways. Parents, everything that you say in your life, everything that you do in your life, every choice you make, everything that you decide to invest your time into is going to reflect in the lives of your children. What you prioritize, your child is going to prioritize. What you value, your child is going to value. How you spend your leisure time is going to teach your children how to spend their leisure time. How often they see you praying and reading the Bible, they're going to learn from that. How you spend money, your kids will. How you treat your spouse your kids will likely treat their future spouse. It's sobering, but it's true. Your passion or lack, their, or lack of passion for God, for Jesus, it directly influences your child's passion for him. There's, a, there's nothing else to be said. It really is that key. I love this old anonymous poem that, that makes this point. Listen to this. written from the perspective of a father. He says, A careful man I ought to be, a little fellow follows me. I do not dare to go astray, for fear he'll go the selfsame way. I must not madly step aside where pleasure's paths are smooth and wide and join in wine's red revelry. A little fellow follows me. I cannot once escape his eyes. Whatever he sees me do, he tries. Like me, he says he's going to be, the little chap who follows me. He thinks that I am good and fine, believes in every word of mine. The base in me, he must not see, the little chap who follows me. I must remember as I go through summer's sun and winter's snow, I'm molding for the world to see, a little fellow follows me. Let's... Be mindful of how our sons and daughters walk in the footsteps of our faith. Let's take seriously the charge of parenting that God has called us to. He's given us an impossible privilege, but He gives us His grace and strength to make that impossible privilege possible. See that the government can't replace you as much as they're going to try, and they are trying. Your, your kids' schools aren't meant to replace you. The church was never meant to replace you. It wasn't designed to replace you. Did you ever think that God put you in your child's life so that your child would come to know and love and serve Jesus? That is the greatest goal of parenting. Uh, there's this book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Parenting. He shares this story about his son Graham. Just listen as I read this. He says this, Early one spring, when Graham was just four years old, I was teaching him to play tennis. In Virginia, a spring day can get hot. I was mindful that swimming season would soon be upon us. So I thought I might take off my shirt to let myself tan a little. After a long winter, my skin gets roughly the color of fluorescent white. As a Christian courtesy to those who might forget to bring their sunglasses to the pool, I thought some bronzing could benefit everyone around me. Why are you taking off your shirt, Dad? Graham asked. I'm just a little hot, came my simplified answer. Instantly, I heard his racket drop to the ground. I'm hot too, Graham said, and suddenly two fluorescent white bodies graced the fortunately abandoned courts. The following Sunday, as Graham and I sat side by side in church, the pastor began reading from the book of Romans. I flipped open my Bible and followed along. When the pastor had finished reading, I laid the open Bible beside me and listened to the sermon. A few minutes later, I glanced down at the chair next to me and saw not one, but two open Bibles. Graham had carefully laid his Bible out, too, at the same angle as mine. Even though he couldn't yet read, Graham brought his Bible to church just like Daddy did. And when Dad left the Bible open, Graham did, too. The next day, Monday, was a holiday. I replaced the turn signal bulb on our station wagon and, without thinking, cleared my throat and spit off to the side. Why'd you do that, asked Graham, who was helping me. I don't really know, I said. Sometimes a guy just needs to spit. (laughs) Less than five seconds later, I heard Graham clear his throat, turn his head, and you guessed it, spit off to the side. Later that evening, we decided to conclude the weekend with a walk on a nearby battlefield. Graham couldn't find his shoes. You look upstairs, I told him, and I'll look downstairs. As soon as I reached the landing and looked down, my heart skipped a beat. In the middle of the floor, just where my wife loves me to leave them, I had taken off my shoes and forgotten them. About six inches from my shoes lay Graham's little tennis shoes placed right next to mine in the middle of the floor, mimicking the same angle at which my shoes had been dropped. And then he says this. He says, this boy was studying me. Every move I made was being watched. Every word I chose, every time I did something without even thinking about it, Graham was watching me and coming to the conclusion, this is what I'm supposed to do because that's what my daddy does. And then he says, I began praying a sober prayer. Please, God, change me. If I'm going to have this much impact on another human being, there are quite a few things I need you to clean up so I don't pass them on. Maybe there's some wisdom for each of us to be praying something similar daily, asking for God to supply all the faith that we need to walk in trusting obedience to him, not only for our sake, but especially for the sake of our sons and our daughters following right behind us. And when we lose our way, when we insist on going our way, when, when we mess up, when we forget God's plan, when we fail to walk by faith, the very best thing we can do in the sight of our children is to confess that we too are children in desperate need of the Father's grace and care. And you better believe that God will give you every ounce of grace that you need. Because what the rest of Genesis 20 proves is that though Abraham failed to walk by faith, yet again, he still could not exhaust the depths of God's grace to restore him. So let's jump back into our passage to see just how gracious God is in restoring Abraham and Sarah. Look at verse 14. It says, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. See, we already saw God graciously intervene earlier. He intervened earlier when he appeared to Abimelech in the dream. That was God's grace, by the way, coming to Abimelech in the dream. His grace prevented Abimelech from committing adultery, and it prevented any doubt about who the father of the soon-to-be-born Isaac would be. And now we see God in his grace allowing Abraham to find favor with Abimelech. Abimelech blesses the patriarch with increased riches. He adds more people to his clan and he returns Sarah completely unharmed and untouched. Look at verse 15. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. So the king generously invites Abraham to remain in the land and to settle wherever he wants. And he keeps going. Verse 16. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. See, Abimelech vindicates Sarah publicly, honoring her as the wife of a prophet. He gives them a thousand pieces of silver, which is estimated to be about 25 pounds of silver, 25 pounds of silver. Now one commentator suggests that this large payment essentially serves as a guarantee that Sarah has been untouched, um, that it also serves um, as an honorarium for um, Abraham's intercession, and also that it serves to appease the God of Abraham who cut off all fertility to Abimelech's family. Because what we find out is that when Abimelech did take Sarah, Not only was his life in danger, but God demonstrated the reality of his power to Abimelech by making it impossible for any of the women there to get pregnant. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. These verses are just Dripping with God's grace. God restores Abraham. He, 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 he guards his promise to Abraham. He, he publicly uh, vindicates Sarah. He adds wealth and blessing to Sarah and Abraham. He affirms Abraham's role as a prophet, and he restores health to Abimelech and to his entire household. As one author put it, the story of Abraham reminds me of discordant music, full of confusing rhythms and clashing chords and unintelligible lyrics. The God-worshipping man behaves immorally while the idolatrous man acts with integrity. The God-worshipping man justifies his sinful choice while the idolatrous man forgives the offense and returns good for evil. It's all theological noise and confusion until God steps in. Then Abraham's song finally resolves into a harmonious, melodious, soothing anthem to God's grace. See, if Abraham didn't outgrow his need to walk by faith, and you better believe. We never outgrow our need to walk by faith. And yet, like Sarah, like Abraham, we enter into to those moments, those days, maybe even those long seasons of fear, th- those seasons of control where we walk every single possible way except by faith. But we can rest assured knowing that the grace that God made available to Abraham and Sarah is the same grace that he makes available to you this very day. So the truth I want you to take home with you today is this. That you can never, ever, ever exhaust God's grace to restore your faith. We can never exhaust God's grace to restore our faith, however you failed to walk by faith. Whatever your besetting sin is, however you've messed up, however you've dropped the ball as a parent now is the time to ask God to restore your faith. See though Abraham for a moment let go of his hold on God, God never let go of his grip on Abraham. Neither will God's gracious grip let you go. If you're a follower of Jesus, You're a child of God, and God will not reject you when you sin any more than you would reject your own child when they're disobedient. Like Abraham, you too are justified by faith, and you have a righteous standing before God. You have a fixed position that can't be altered based on your circumstances, based on your actions, based on your sins. So let this be the time that you bring your sins humbly and honestly before God. Confess them to him. Claim his promise of forgiveness and surrender control of your life to him. Give Jesus permission to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Let him walk by faith through you. Let him do it. Let a lifestyle of faith become your new normal. I love how Dane Ortland puts it in his book called Deeper. He writes this. He says, we do not merely begin the Christian life by faith. We progress by faith. It is our new normal. We process life, we navigate this mortal existence by a moment by moment, turning to God in trust and hope at each juncture, each decision, each passing hour. We walk by faith, not by sight. That is, we move through life with our eyes looking ever up. Our posture is one of expectant empowering from above. Church, the riches of God's grace are inexhaustible. You can never exhaust His grace to restore your faith. It's there in endless supply for you to take. He gives, He gives, He gives, and He gives. Just like that early 1900s hymn that says this He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater, He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that your need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share lean hard on the arm everlasting availing the father both thee and thy load will upbear his love has no limits his grace has no measure his power no boundary known unto men for out of his infinite riches in jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again abraham and sarah made a new beginning it means every single one of us can too let's pray Father, we confess, Lord, that we need you. We desperately need you, Lord. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for all those times we chose to to walk by sight. All those times we chose to take situations into our own hands and not trust you with them. Lord, all those times we allowed fear to wreak havoc in our lives. All those times, God, we turned our back on you. And Lord, we know that we are forgiven. God, thank you that your grace cannot be exhausted. Lord, I pray that our lives would be lives characterized by faith. Lord, I pray that this would be a church characterized by Jesus' loving people who walk by faith. Lord, I pray, God, that you would give us all the strength we need, that you would empower us with your power, that, that God, through the, the might of the Spirit indwelling inside each one of your children, God, that we would yield to that power and allow Jesus to live his life through us, to to walk by faith in us and through us. God, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for what you've done on our behalf, Lord, and thank you for showing yourself faithful time and time and time again only a little bit into the book of Genesis and you just show off over and over again and we haven't even gotten close to Jesus yet Lord and that's your greatest demonstration of your faithfulness and we are so grateful for him thank you for Jesus thank you that he bridges the gap between us and you that he gives us his life when we call on him God I pray for anybody in here feeling burdened, feeling weary, fearful, alone, anybody in need of healing, God, I pray that you would meet them in this moment, Lord, with your strong love, with your free grace. God, I pray that you'd minister to their heart this moment that you cast their sins as far as the east is from the west. Lord, their past is no more. And God, and now by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, you give us all the power we need to walk by faith, the power of the resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that you give us access to in the indwelling spirit. Lord, so we yield to you. And we are so thankful for Jesus. God, may we go this week walking by faith. We don't know what tomorrow holds, Lord, but we know that you're there. God, so help us to trust you in all things and to bring honor and glory to our Lord Jesus. And it's in his mighty name that all God's people said, amen.